Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all. Happy almost new year. Excited that we're getting to ring out 2023, worshiping, praising God together. I hope you had a great Christmas season. Got some good gifts, right? That's what it's all about. I about you guys, but uh, see these puppies here. Those are from my in-laws. That's how I know the world is going round, that uh, Christmas comes and so do the socks from my mother and father-in-law. Uh, I am loved. I am loved for sure. Um, well, this Sunday uh, falls in between sermon series. Uh, we just finished up our Christmas sermon series, Emmanuel. We studied the scriptures and especially the theological reality of the incarnation, the enfleshing of God in the person of Jesus. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to begin a new sermon series on Daniel chapters 1 through 6 uh, and study the life and the experience of the prophet Daniel uh, and his time in exile in Babylon. Just some amazing stories and testimonies of God's faithfulness through the life of the prophet um, but this Sunday, again, kind of falls in no man's land, in between these two sermon series. And so this is what uh, we call CP Choice Sunday, Campus Pastor Choice Sunday. And I kind of get to do whatever I want to do. Um, and uh, really, it's a chance for me to sort of uh, share with you my heart as one of your pastors, um, because that's really what I'm going off of. There's not an assigned sermon text that we're just sort of uh, laying out and following the scriptures where they take us. It's more of like, what's on my heart? What's burdening me? And what do I think we, we need to hear if I just got one shot? Um, and it really relates to our unity as a church. It's what I want to share with you guys about is our unity as a church. Um, and it doesn't come uh, coincidentally right before an election year. Um, that certainly is a part of what's on my mind and on my heart for us as we head into what is just naturally a divisive experience uh, where we all lay claim, this is our side, this is our side, or I don't even have a side, you know, whatever. Um, but if it's not an election year, it's always something that's pulling at the fabric of our unity as a people. Um, just two months ago with what happened in Israel, created this whole new debate. You know, are you pro-Israel? Are you pro-Gaza? Are you sympathetic with them or are you sympathetic with them? And there's all sorts of debates and protests and hate that's pulling us apart as a people. So it's always something. If it's not an election year, it's something else. But, but that's what's on my heart and what I want to share with you guys about. And to do so, <clears throat> I want to look at Psalm 133. So if you, uh, if you have a Bible and open it up kind of right in the middle, you'll probably land on the Psalms. And if you hit Proverbs, just go to your left a little bit. <clears throat> Psalm 133, one of the shortest chapters in the entire Bible. So if you have a uh, goal for the new year, a New Year's resolution of memorizing an entire chapter of Scripture, this is one of the least ambitious options that you could choose. <laughs> Only three verses. Uh, but I'll read them for us, and then we'll dive in. Psalm 133, brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. 
a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are more divided than ever. That's a sentiment that I've heard several times over the last few years, and I've heard it from a range of different people, relatives, friends, media figures, younger people, older people, progressive people, conservative people, spiritual leaders, political leaders. I've all heard express at one point or another over the last few years their shared opinion that we are more divided than ever. So it seems the only thing we can agree on is that we can't agree on anything. The only thing we're united about is that we're not, in fact, united. There's divisions between ethnicities, divisions between genders, divisions between political parties, divisions over environmental issues, over economic issues, over immigration issues, and we could go on and on and on. These divisions seem to be deeper and more bitter than ever. And for those of us who embrace the Bible as God's Word, all of this comes as little surprise to us because we understand that even though God created our world good, a place of harmony and peace, we also understand that our world now is not as God originally meant it to be. There is this alien power that has invaded God's good creation and infected each one of our hearts. The Bible refers to this power as sin. And ever since sin came into the world, it has caused division. It's divided us from God, and it's divided us from one another. So in Genesis chapter 3, when confronted by the Lord upon his original transgression, Adam replies, God, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. So Adam's sin-infected heart caused him to point the finger of blame at God and at his wife evidence that he was no longer united with God as he once was, evidence that he was no longer one flesh with his wife as he once was. There was now this relational divide once sin entered the picture. And the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, it tells the story of the couple's first two sons, Cain and Abel, and a rift erupts so deep between these two that Cain takes his brother's life. And we could go on and on throughout the biblical narrative highlighting the divisive power of sin. People are divided from God. Families are divided from one another. Nations war one another, even going to war within themselves at times. So we are as divided as ever because sin is as present as ever. And sadly, we must admit that such divisions affect the church 
just as well. Sometimes it's over petty disagreements related to church decorations or music style. Sometimes it's over more serious political or social issues. But in both cases, we allow priorities with less importance than the gospel to overtake our unity in the gospel. So, for example, I know we both agree that Jesus is the Son of God, but because you don't share my preferences for how the church should be decorated, we can't do church together. It's over. I know we both agree that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father, but our musical tastes differ, so I'm out of here. I know we both agree in the sin-atoning death of Jesus on the cross, but you're going to vote for this political candidate, and I'm going to vote for that political candidate, so either you got to leave or I'm leaving. I was an interim pastor for a church outside of Cincinnati about eight years ago, and along with preaching on Sunday mornings, I also led a church-wide Bible study on Sunday evenings, and I led the church through a Bible study on the church. And one of the lessons was looking at what the Bible had to say about the priority of the gospel in the life of the church, that the person and work of Christ must be central to all the church is and does. And then eventually I wanted to bring this teaching into real life, and so I said, okay, guys, in light of what we've seen about the centrality of the gospel, here's a question we need to ask ourselves. Is it possible for Republicans and Democrats to go to church together? And I'll never forget, there was about 30 people there, and they all, with one voice, laughed at my question with an obvious no. And so I replied to them, guys, this means it's possible that our political views have overtaken our gospel convictions in importance. If we're only willing to be spiritually aligned with people that we're also politically aligned with, then we have to ask ourselves, is it our spirituality or our politics that's really uniting us? Is Jesus our center? Is the cross that which we are rallied around? Or is it our political agenda? Or is it our ethnicity? Or is it our socioeconomic status? Or is it our preferences for how the church should look and feel? There are any number of things that can replace Jesus as our center, replace the gospel as that which really unites us. And when that happens, division happens along lines which God never meant it to. And so sadly, tragically, the church is just as susceptible to the divisive power of sin. Well, in Psalm 133, God confronts our divisive tendencies, and we don't know the specific historical circumstances in which David wrote this psalm. Maybe he wrote it after his rivalry with King Saul was finished, and the nation was then united under David's rule. Maybe he wrote the psalm after... Absalom's rebellion was defeated, and the nation was once more united under David's rule. But whatever the circumstances, this psalm urges us to celebrate the gift of spiritual unity. Unity is a rarity, it seems, but there is a uniting power in our shared spiritual convictions. 
our convictions related to who God is, our convictions related to how God saves, there's a uniting power to our shared spiritual identity. And David's psalm calls us to celebrate and to promote that unity amongst ourselves. And as this text unfolds, we're going to see three ways to celebrate unity. First, David's psalm urges us, come into the family. Come into the family. So look once more at verse 1 of the psalm. David begins with this line. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So David's song calls us to recognize the goodness and pleasing nature when brothers dwell together. And this reference to brothers is most specifically a reference to the people of God. After all, this psalm was written for God's people to sing together as they gathered for worship. So he's saying when we gather as the people of God, we are gathered as the family of God. When we gather as fellow members of God's people, we are gathering as fellow members of God's household. Those who dwell together, those who live together, spiritual siblings. Where I come from in Alabama, there is a huge rivalry, a deep, bitter, ancient rivalry. Hopes and dreams and prayers all ride on the outcome of this conflict. Of course, I'm talking about the very important matter of football contests between the Alabama Crimson Tide and the Auburn Tigers, Tigers, this very important game played by 18 to 22-year-old young men. It is a very serious rivalry and game. I hope you can sense my sarcasm. It's really ridiculous. But over the years, Alabama has gotten so good and so dominant, they started referring to themselves as the Bama Nation. The idea being we're bigger than a team, we're bigger than a university, we are a nation of bammers. And in response to that, on the other side of the rivalry, we started referring to ourselves as the Auburn family, as the AU family. Because yeah, you guys may have the highest paid coach, yeah, you guys may have the most five-star recruits and the bigger athletic department budget, but we are family. We are brothers and sisters who bleed orange and blue, and we're going to take down the evil empire, which we have failed to do (laughs) thus far. (laughs) But maybe Michigan will help us out tomorrow. Right. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) But you see that instinct we have to call ourselves family. Because there's this native desire within us to see ourselves as fellow fans, not just fellow fans. There's this instinctual desire to embrace our shared commitment to our team that not only makes us a team or fans, but family. We want that. We were created for it. Now, you zoom out 30,000 feet to see this for what it is, and you think, okay, yeah, well, this is just a football game and a football team, so maybe we take this too far. But still, within us, there's this desire for connection. There's this desire for union with one another that goes deeper than a ball club. We're family. 
Well, brothers and sisters, that kind of connection, that kind of union is exactly what we do have as the people of God. As David says, we here are experiencing, we here are experiencing the goodness and pleasing nature of brothers dwelling together. And at no point in redemptive history is this more true than it is now under the new covenant in Christ. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, we hear about this scene in which Jesus is with his disciples in someone's home, and he's teaching a large group there, so large that it's impossible for anyone else to enter the home. And it just happens that Jesus' mother, Mary, and his biological siblings show up at the house, and they can't get in. So they send word through the crowd to Jesus, hey, Jesus, your family is here. They're trying to get in. Could you make an announcement to the crowd so that they'll make room for your family to come in? And here's Jesus' response when he gets that message. This is Matthew chapter 12, verse 48 and 49. Jesus replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here. My mother, brother, sister are already here. Because whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So you see here, Jesus is redefining the family of God along the lines of who are his disciples. Jesus is redefining spiritual family along the lines of who does the will of the Father in heaven. So this is a radical claim that Jesus is making. It is not biological ties that unite us most securely as a family, no. Instead, it's shared spiritual allegiance to Jesus and shared obedience to our Heavenly Father. That is what unites us most securely as a family. And so, church, this means that we are closer with our brothers and sisters in India and China and Iran and Nigeria and anywhere else we are closer with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world than we are with our own blood relatives. That's what this means. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, Jesus says, that's my mother, brother, sister. And think about it. And so I want to call on you, church, to come into this family. Follow Jesus and join the household of God through the cross. Jesus has made access into this family wide open for you. The cross is the key that opens the door into the household of God. Because on the cross, He paid the price for your sin. He bore the judgment we deserved so that when you trust in Christ, God will then draw you so near that you could be called nothing else but His child. And along with receiving God as your father, you will also receive God's people as your siblings. And so I call on you, come into this family. Next, David calls us to come with harmony, come into the family with harmony. He says, notice again from verse 1, David writes, Behold, how good and pleasant 
when brothers, plural, dwell in unity, singular. How good and pleasant when brothers, plural, dwell in unity, singular. So here we see the principle of unity amongst diversity. There is a diversity amongst the people of God, amen? There are diverse genders, male and female. There are diverse backgrounds, every tribe, tongue, and nation. There are diverse personalities. There are diverse opinions of all sorts. But how good and pleasant when brothers and sisters, male and female, American and Canadian and Mexican and wherever, when politically left and politically right, when the poor and the wealthy, when the traditional and the contemporary, how good and pleasant when the diverse people of God dwell together in unity and harmony. This is one of the reasons I love football. The diversity that exists amongst this unified whole. So in other sports, baseball, basketball, hockey, there's some diversity amongst the players, but nothing like football. In football, there's a wide diversity that exists amongst the unified whole. So on one end of the spectrum, you have offensive and defensive linemen. These are these mammoth, brutish, violent guys who slam their bodies into one another on every play. Look at these guys towering next to one another. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got kickers. You look at this guy. He is a twig compared to those other guys. He's got his little soccer cleats on. He's got his tiny little face mask that he doesn't really need. But that's the beauty. All these different players, different roles, different assignments, different sizes, different speeds, different strength, different equipment, all harmoniously working together toward their shared purpose. And you think about it, if they weren't different, they couldn't fulfill their purpose. If every football player was the same, then you'd have kickers playing linemen, you'd have linemen playing kicker, and neither situation would work out for the team. But the team needs differing abilities and sizes and strengths of the individual players. And the same is true for us as a church. Traditionally-minded people need more progressively-minded people in their lives and vice versa in order to balance one another out. Younger people need older people in their lives and vice versa in order to balance one another's perspectives out. Thick-skinned, assertive people need softer, more gracious people in their lives and vice versa in order to balance one another out. And we could go on and on like that. God is calling us to unity within our diversity, if for no other reason, because it's practically helpful and brings balance to the life of our church. But let's be honest, our diversity can make things hard. Our differences are real, and when things heat up, our differences come to the surface, and it can be easy to get annoyed. It can be easy to get frustrated, and then in your frustration and annoyance to say and act in ways out of harmony betraying our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I want us to listen to this instruction from the Apostle Paul. This is from Romans chapter 12, verses 16 through 18. And he writes this to the church in Rome. He says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So you hear that? He says, if at all possible, whatever part you could possibly play, live peaceably with one another. In other words, working towards harmony, you very likely may have to stretch yourself. You very likely may have to have a conversation you don't want to have. You very likely may have to spend time with someone you don't want to spend time with. Paul says, don't pull the trigger on division until you have done everything conceivably possible to work through an issue. Our unity is a gift, and our diversity is a gift. So let's come together in harmony, working through our differences with gentleness, humility, patience, quick to listen, slow to speak, and often to pray. Finally, David's celebration of our spiritual unity, he says it's a call to be refreshed. Come and be refreshed by spiritual unity. In verses 2 and 3, we see two pictures of the refreshing nature of spiritual unity. And for time's sake, we're only going to look at the first one. So look at verse 2. David writes, It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now this image may be a little jarring, like what's going on here, because pouring oil on one another's heads isn't something we might do too often today, but oil being poured on one's head was a common image of God's provision and God's blessing in His people's lives. You think about the, sa- the famous Psalm one, uh, 23. David says near the end of that psalm, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So this was a common image of God's favor, oil anointing the head of God's people. And best I can tell, based on reading the commentators and other biblical references, is that in the ancient world, oil was a way to both clean and give your hair a pleasing aroma. So as I understand it, shampoo was not easily manufactured and thus eliminating odors wasn't easily accomplished. So having oil like this was a delicacy of sorts. And here in Psalm 133, David refers to the oil used at the consecration of the priests. So Aaron was the first priest back when the tabernacle was established under Moses in the Exodus. So David is saying the unity of God's people is like the top shelf oil used in the consecration of the priests. In other words, this is not the store brand cheapo shampoo. This is the high-end stuff you got to get at the salon. That's how pleasing, that's how refreshing the unity of God's people can be. You think about some of the pleasing aromas in your life and how they draw you in. I think about growing up Saturday mornings, getting to sleep in after a long week of school, and being woken up by the smell of bacon. It's being cooked in the kitchen by my mom, and that wonderful aroma 
would almost lift me out of my bed and draw me right downstairs. Or you think about your children or your little baby right after you give them a bath. Their smell is so fresh and all Johnson and Johnson-y, you know? And you just want to draw them in and snuggle them. There's just something compelling and attractive and refreshing about sweet aromas. David says, so it is with the unity of God's people. When people come here, when outsiders come here, and they see people with real differences, serious differences between you and I, brother, sister, Christian, Outsiders come here and they see us with real serious differences still loving one another, listening to one another, serving one another. When they see that, they're going to be refreshed because they ain't seeing it out there. They're not seeing it in their families. They're not seeing it in their politics. But when they come here and see it, it's going to be like a pleasing aroma and they're going to say, man, what has gotten into you guys? Some of you guys got different political views. You got different backgrounds. Some of you are old. Some of you are young. Some of you are well-off. Some of you are poor. Some of you look like this. Some of you have that background. What in the heck is keeping you guys together? There's no reason all of you guys should be in the same room. And that's when we can tell you, man, we've been dying to tell you. It's Jesus. Jesus brings us together. There's no other excuse. There's a lot of you guys in here who don't like football, like me. But you're still here because of Jesus. I'm just giving myself a pass for talking about football so much. And I'm encouraging you to love me in Christ despite not being a sports fan. That's what keeps you here with me. Not just silly things like sports. I'm talking about serious stuff. Like I'm white and you're black. Like I'm American and you're African. Like I lean this way politically and you lean that way politically. Like I have this amount of money, I'm in this socioeconomic status and you're in that socioeconomic status. Some real differences that divide this very community that we exist in. People are gonna come here, see all of us together, worshiping God with one voice and say, what in the heck? This is nice. This is pleasing. This is different. And we can say, yeah, one reason, Jesus of Nazareth. We are united around the person of Jesus. That is it. We're united around the truth that he is fully God and fully man. He's the promised savior. We are united around the cross of Jesus where he earned our forgiveness. We're united around our shared hope that Jesus defeated death through his resurrection. Those gospel truths, that's what unites us. So church, in a world that is plagued by division, in a world that is literally, people are dying over division in the Middle East right now. The human race is plagued by deadly divisions. May our unity in Christ be a breath of fresh air. 
May our unity in Christ be a breath of fresh air for a world that is exhausted from so much division. Hear me. Let's be honest about our differences, okay? I'm not saying let's take our differences and just stuff them back behind the stage. I'm not saying our differences aren't real. I'm not saying our differences aren't serious. Let's be honest about our differences, but let's work hard to put Jesus at our center despite our real differences. Let's work hard to put every preference, every opinion under the priority of the gospel so that we might glorify God, so that we might gain a hearing from our community for the sake of the gospel. Church, that is my heart for you. I pray the Lord would bless us and keep us together under Christ, under Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's word together. We'll sing all as one, but I'll lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, our Father in heaven, we are gathered here, your children. We are your children, not because of our biology. We were not born into your family by flesh and blood, no. We were born into your family by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, the one gospel. So God, we come together and we embrace this truth. We celebrate this truth that we are siblings in Christ. White, black, rich, poor, Asian, African-American, right, left. We are one family in Christ. Father in heaven, I pray that we would have the humility and the courage to have honest conversations about our differences pray we would have the humility and courage and grace to stay together despite our differences. God, only you can keep us. Only you can keep us. And so may Jesus be lifted high and we come together around him and may your Holy Spirit be poured out and change our hearts so that we could be open to one another, loving towards one another. God, only you can do this. And so we pray pray in Jesus' name, help us.